This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellums. You know the drill. Another day of checking to make sure what you're scheduled to do is still happening. More sleet and freezing rain yesterday didn't do anything to make getting around any better. The National Weather Service does expect high temperatures in the mid to upper 40s tomorrow and Friday. Meanwhile, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has declared a state of emergency in Arkansas because of the weather. Thank you for making time to be with us today. Ahead on our show, State Senator Jonathan Dismang sits down with Roby Brock to discuss the budget and why impending proposed legislation regarding education reform will have a major influence on the budget. That conversation in about 15 minutes. First, just moments after being sworn in as governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders made a slew of executive orders. One of those orders that caught headlines was to, quote, eliminate culturally insensitive words from official use in government documents or employee titles. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. One of the things as governor that I will not permit is the government using culturally insensitive words. Um, According to research, only 3% of American Latinos and Hispanics use the word Latinx to describe themselves. Yet during the transition, we found numerous instances of departments embracing the use of this term. Uh, And the institution which governs the Spanish language has officially rejected the use of X as an alternative to O and an A in Spanish. And today we are rejecting its use in state government in all documents. That was Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders on her first day in office, signing an executive order to effectively ban the word Latinx from official government usage. The decision got a lot of attention, outrage, and praise. But when it comes to the word Latinx, what does it mean? Where does it come from? Who uses it? And is it as controversial as the governor is making it out to be? It feels extremely ridiculous and hypocritical. Um, Never have I heard Governor Sanders speaking uh, on behalf or doing anything proactive for the Latinx community. That's Rumba Yambu, director of the Little Rock-based transgender advocacy group Intransitive. They are trans non-binary and Latinx, and they say the term Latinx is meant to be an inclusive option for people who don't identify with terms like Hispanic, Latino, or Latina. And I identified with it because um, I'm a trans person. um, And the term Latinx um, just encompasses my identity more. They say Latinx is not the first time people have challenged gendered language in Spanish, with words like Latine spelled with A and E at the end, which some Spanish speakers say fits better when spoken, and the term Latinat spelled with an ampersand sign, which was first used in the 1990s. Here's Dr. Yahaira Padilla, director of the University of Arkansas Latin American and Latino Studies Department. This is a term that is, you know, part of a long kind of genealogy of ways in which, you know, Latino, Latina communities or Hispanic communities, right? Right there I have like three terms, right? I've been attempting to come up with more, you know, inclusive terminology, right, to discuss or to talk about what is an extremely heterogeneous and, you know, always changing population. She says one of the first times the X suffix was used in Spanish was as early as the 1960s. Um, In terms of thinking about, you know, populations from, you know, Mexican-American populations, particularly Chicanos or Chicanas, 
right? This was used in the 60s, right? It has a marker of like feminist resistance. So it comes from the use of the Notwal language, right? The X is like a cha or sha sound. So Chicana Chicana has been written with the X. And um, it's also something that was used, you know, in has been used even in Spanish in like kind of the 90s, you know, to mark also the gender non-binary. And so Yambu says the use of Latinx is a way to draw attention to a language that can often feel restrictive when it comes to gender. Um, the Spanish language is extremely gender. You know, everything has a gender in Spanish, right? Uh, the tree it's masculine and the flower is feminine and so forth. So everything has a gender and, um, and it's extremely patriarchal. You know, it, it puts a lot of importance on um, male identified folks. Um, you can have a room full of Latinas, a hundred Latina women. And the moment one man walks in, you stop calling them Latinas and start saying Latinos to all of them. And Padilla says the debate that Latinx has opened is important because language often has social implications, and challenging it can help to make progress. Language is very much linked to cultural identity, but there's dominant ways in which Latinos are imagined, right? Just as there are dominant ways in which they're imagined as all mestizo or brown, which is not the case. So I think that language has a role to play in that, right? But in Spanish in particular, because it's so gendered, because Spanish is one of those languages that is the Latina and the Latino, right? Feminine male. Um, And so to mark it, that's a way to kind of mark a a difference and inclusion. And so I think it is important because it is trying to, you know, create in different areas possibilities for more inclusion, even if it's imperfect. But what about resistance to the word? A Pew Research study from 2020 cited by Sanders in her executive order shows that only 3% of U.S. Hispanics identify as Latinx, while about 75% had never heard the word. Both Padilla and Yambu say Latinx isn't a perfect fit for everyone, but they say for most Hispanic or Latino people in the U.S. who don't use the term, no one they've talked to has found it offensive. Um, but in terms of kind of within the community, I don't see or I haven't heard folks as right riled up about this, right? I, and, I, and, and quite honestly, I don't think it affects their daily lives in, in a very particular pertinent way. And Padilla says in the U.S., terms like Hispanic and Latino are umbrella terms that attempt to encapsulate many different people from disparate backgrounds, which she says doesn't always make sense for people who are labeled those terms. Latin Americans, you know, they become Latinos when they come here, right? That is a, an ethnic term imposed on them, or Hispanic. That's not necessarily how they identify themselves nationally or regionally in Latin America. And some folks continue to identify not as Latinos, but like, I'm Mexicano, right? I'm, you know, Nicaraguense. So there's those different distinctions. So she says allowing for debate and inclusion of terms like Latinx can help broaden these identifying categories and help people outside of those communities recognize diversity that exists. And Yambu says they aren't advocating for everyone to identify that way, but rather just to have the option. 
I've never made someone identify as Latinx, nor have I ever heard someone who is Latinx make somebody else identify as Latinx. Um, so it's very much how you identify yourself, right? Um, so whenever I'm speaking about my community, I say Latinx because I'm talking about multiple genders within the uh, the group of folks that fall under Latin America. Um, so that's why I would say, like, you know, the Latinx community, right? I'm referring to all of these genders, not just one gender, by saying Latinos. They say language changes all the time. So why should the inclusion of Latinx be any different? You know, if you speak to somebody who speaks Spanish here, they will use terms um, like they might tell you, like, can you give me a ride somewhere? And they'll say, right there. Well, you can look up the word right in every dictionary in the world in Spanish and you're not going to find it. But folks know what that is, you know. Uh, troca, there's just like all of these terms that we've adapted uh, as a way to like survive within the country and the mixture of the two languages. And everybody accepts it widely. You know, nobody's going around saying, hey, don't say right when you need a ride or don't say troca when you're talking about pickup trucks because you're destroying culture. Nobody says that, you know. Folks just, like, naturally adapt to it. Some use it, some don't. So I feel like Latinx is is the same way. And Padilla points out Latinx is not a trend, and any attempts to stop its usage aren't likely to work. You know, the term exists in the Oxford English Dictionary. It was put in there in 2015. So with each, you know, space and time, you know, it changes. And... I think, you know, I think the important thing is, yeah, raising the, the, raising the possibility of having the conversation. That moves the needle. And when it comes to Governor Sanders' executive order, Yambu says it feels more like an attack on transgender people than an attempt to respect a culture. And when you look at the latest data on trans folks uh, in Arkansas, the largest population of trans people in Arkansas are Latinx folks. So whenever you have representatives and a governor that is pushing and spearheading uh, campaigns around criminalizing and exterminating trans people, and then you have her randomly come out and also try to ban this word that is very specific primarily to trans folks who are Latinx and gender nonconforming folks. And then it just feels like here you are trying to continue this anti-trans agenda, but also bringing in the ethnicity part, the race part of it, right, um, by targeting the largest group of trans folks in the state. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Northwest Arkansas Community College in Bentonville is reporting a nearly 16% increase in spring enrollment. NWAC counted just more than 7,400 students enrolled yesterday, the 11th day of spring classes. The unofficial 11th day count last spring was just more than 6,400 students. Senate Bill 71 would stop state agencies from using affirmative action in employment, schools, or procurement. The bill passed an Arkansas Senate committee yesterday with Democratic Senator Clark Tucker from Little Rock being the lone dissenter. If this passes through the process and becomes law, then the state of Arkansas is saying that discrimination no longer exists, racism no longer exists, sexism no longer exists, uh, and there's nothing more we need to do to make sure that people who have been historically discriminated against and historically disenfranchised, there's nothing more that we need to do to put them on equal footing with everyone else. 
Senator Dan Sullivan, a Republican from Jonesboro, said he believes racism and discrimination still exist in Arkansas, but programs that privilege someone's race for procurement or employment contribute to the problem. He said he felt Clark Tucker's statements were inflammatory. Yeah, you effectively accuse me of racism. And they, the statements that you're making that racism isn't over, I agree. And sexism isn't over. And if you're effectively, again, I think you're saying that this bill denies that. And since I'm presenting the bill, that I'm guilty of those things. And I take, uh, you know, I take, I disagree with that strongly. That bill now goes to the full Senate for a vote. Another bill which would require Arkansans to submit proof of their age before viewing sexually explicit material online has advanced through a legislative panel. Members of the Senate Insurance and Commerce Committee yesterday approved Senate Bill 66, which would require users to submit a copy of their photo ID in order to view so-called harmful materials like pornography. Republican Senator Missy Irvin of Mountain View said the bill is needed to protect minors in the state. There is a failure happening with parents who are handing devices to their children as early as the age of four or three or two. And whether it's an iPad or whether it's a phone or whatever, and we do not do enough in this government or anywhere to educate parents about the harmful things that are happening with these devices. Urban voice concerns that the bill could lead to Arkansans' personal information being stolen as the result of an online data breach. The bill's sponsor, Republican Senator Tyler Dees of Salem Springs, said companies would be found liable for not safeguarding users' personal data. The bill now goes to the full Senate for a vote. And more legislative news just ahead. Roby Brock will sit down with State Senator Jonathan Dismang, the chair of the Joint Budget Committee. They discuss potential effects to the state budget that criminal justice and education reforms might have. That's just ahead. Frost Fest returns to the Washington County Fairgrounds February 4th from 2 to 7 p.m. This outdoor beer festival features over 40 local and regional breweries, vendors, food trucks, live music, and more. Proceeds to benefit apple seeds and barley, hops, and water. Tickets at FossilCoveBrewing.com. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Cross That River at the Skokus Performing Arts Center on February 25th at 7.30 p.m. Cross That River is based on real history in which black cowboys lived and helped settle the West and takes audiences on a musical journey into why black lives matter. Tickets available at 479-632-2129 or at skokuspac.org. Later today on Ozarks at Large, Pastor Clinch Nickloth is back to begin a series of book recommendations for winter. And for his first suggestion, he literally didn't have to look too far, just past the pulpit. A number of the people in our congregation are also professors at the University of Arkansas. It just so happened that this year, three of them all published books in the same year. Pastor Clinch Nickloth brings us conversation about those books in our second half hour. On the next episode of Resilient Black Women, Joy guides us through a meditation for the new year. It's an opportunity to slow down, to check in with your body, and to remind yourself all you have to do is take it one day at a time. All you need is your breath and your body. Your past self is proud of how far you have come. And your future self is in awe of who you will be. 
You can use this 20-minute meditation anytime you're feeling overwhelmed, overworked, or just need to take some time for yourself. A meditation for the new year on the next Resilient Black Women podcast, available for free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is a Wednesday, Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Almost every other Wednesday, we hear an excerpt from the new episode of Undisciplined, the podcast produced at KUAF in conjunction with the University of Arkansas's Department of African and African American Studies. This week, we're sharing that excerpt with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on our Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. At the state capitol, one of the biggest responsibilities for lawmakers is settling on a budget, one that constitutionally has to be balanced. Much of the heavy lifting for the budget is waiting for details connected to three major proposals, education reform, criminal justice reform, and tax cuts. We haven't seen those proposals just yet. Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, recently sat down with State Senator Jonathan Dismang, a Republican from White County and the chair of the Joint Budget Committee. Roby asked Senator Dismang about those still-to-be-introduced matters and how they might affect the budgeting process. Education, the Senate and the House do have numbers from adequacy, right. their adequacy studies, um, and they're different. What right. do you think we're going to be looking at spending in the education <laughs> realm um, it, when you factor in the fact that uh, Governor Sanders wants to do some new initiatives? Is she going to pull that money from things that exist in the existing budget already for education, or do you think we're looking at some funding from somewhere else that's going to complement that. Probably a little bit of, you know, all of the above. Um, again, I haven't seen the education plan, so I don't have any ballpark figures on what that's going to cost, what we're going to do. We do know that uh, there is a, a portion that's going to be uh, for increasing teacher pay. Again, that's going to have a direct impact. But again, I have no idea if I'm just being transparent or what that's going to look like. Yeah. And that's why you see me being hesitant in regards to the budget. What about on some of the, well, and look, I think this whole interview is going to be a hesitancy I about uh, specifics here. But I'm just, yeah. I'm, again, I, the budget is such a big piece of what gets done up there. And a lot of these policy measures that are being discussed are going to have some big price tags. That's right. So um, let's move to prison reform, mm -hmm. sentencing reform. If I were to factor in what everybody is talking about, 5,000 new prison beds, is that where you're going with yeah, some stuff? but that's not going to have any impact currently on what we're doing, and I don't think it'll be 5,000. I mean, I've heard that rolled back to 3,000, to 3,500, and even 1,500. So, again, until we get that package out and we know what we're going to need to do in regards to parole reform, I'm not sure we know the number of beds. But again, the immediate impact on the budget, there won't be any because it's going to be a five to six year process to get a new prison constructed. Uh, what we will have an immediate budget impact is if we change the parole laws, there's still going to have to be a space uh, for these folks to go. Um, and again, I, I haven't seen what that plan looks right. like, but that would be your immediate cost. How do you get numbers on that, though? How do you feel like the data that you're getting in terms of, like, let's say, the sentencing goes from, you know, let's just say right now, 15, they're getting out after 15% right. of their time. We're going to change that to 85% of their time. That's a big number. Right. That's a calculating number to get to. Right. But nobody can tell me how many people are in that universe that might be going to 15 <laughs> to 85. And you need that number. Absolutely. To be able to budget for it. How are you going to get that type of detail? I mean, hopefully we're getting that from the administration and from the members that are putting forward, you know, these efforts. Um, but at this point, I know they rely on some federal data. And then there's some behavior change that's being anticipated, too. And how does that impact that that number? I mean, obviously, I mean, if you're changing the profiles, you're doing it hoping that you're going to change a behavior. Uh, and, you know, that, like I said, I think that that calculation typically comes 
uh, some from federal uh, data that's been collected. All right, on healthcare, there are some known quantities. Um, you know that there's going to be this uh, unraveling of continuous enrollment. Right. Uh, that's going to stop sometime in the first you know quarter to half of this year, right. more than likely. Um, that's a big number too, and we're going to lose some federal matching dollars as a result of that. Do you feel like you got a good calculus? on what that is right now? No, not at this point. And because mainly we've been waiting, we, we've said for a while now that that's about to unravel and it's still yet, yet to unravel. So, you know, who's packaged up into that and what that looks like, we do not know. We do know we have good reserves in place. And so we'll be able to withstand some of the change on the immediate and then as this administration works forward, what, what is the long-term plan? Right. But. I've, been, I've been in some of those budget hearings, though, and you have asked administration officials right. in the previous administration, for sure, maybe, I don't know if you have in the current one, but right. there's obviously some um, overlap there. That's right. Um, they've given, you, they, have they answered the questions that you've asked so far about where that, you know, how much of that federal money is out there and waiting and, and what we may be looking at having to pick up on the state tab? Not at this point. Not at this so. point, all right. When are you going to get angry about that? <laughs> I don't get angry. So. <laughs> when are you going to get adamant about that? Right. No, we're going to start pushing things. I mean, we have to because we're going to get at a point, even in this administration, and one of the things we'd be waiting on is what does their balanced budget look like? Of course, the, the legislative branch is going to want to have a say in the final outcome of that, but we'll have a better idea of what's happening, what they're seeing, what they're expecting, what they're telling their secretaries when we get that balanced budget. All right, Medicaid expansion is the other kind of critical component right. of this. Right now the feds pick up 90% of the tab on everything that falls into that Medicaid expansion right. program right there. Um, do you have assurances from the administration that that's going to be a continuing program or are you still up in air about that too? You're hesitant on everything. To no, do I mean, on, on that one I, I don't think we should be hesitant. We, you know, we, we have worked through that repeatedly over the years <laughs> I, and I think at this point we've we've moved past it uh, of course I haven't had a conversation with anyone that's looking to make major changes in this session I think it would be a mistake too just because of everything else that we've got going on uh, but again I, I, I would be shocked if that's something that we want to push in the midst of these other big three items that we're, we're trying to continue with. Which as many with. new members as there are, both right. in the Senate and the House. I want to say there's 47 maybe new members out of the 135 legislature, uh, 135 member legislature. Are you, and do you feel like, have you had any conversations with any of them about, you know, this is a 75% threshold. This takes a lot more than just the regular 50% plus one push. Right, that and also, I mean, I would also tell the minority can't control an appropriation either. Uh, you know, we kind of proved that out with uh, Governor Hutchinson when he had a line item veto and appropriation. So we, we have had those discussions. Uh, and I've tried to inject a number of our new members into the budget process. If you'll see, uh, they're either vice chairs or in some that were coming from the House, you know, chairing some of our subcommittees and budgets so that they're getting acclimated to how this works and, and, and really the process. Tax cuts are going to come late because of all the other uncertainty that we've outlined with right. public safety, with education, and, and obviously with health care. Do you think there's still going to be room in this budget to do some sort of meaningful tax cut? I do, but I think it'll be tied to triggers, to making sure that we don't have to tap into, for instance, our catastrophic reserve fund. And so I think you'll see that built. I know that you're going to see that built into the budget. Um, I think one of the questions Who's is... Who's going to make sure that happens? Well, Are you kind of like the guy that's in charge of that or something? Well, so? yeah, we're working through that, that <laughs> drafting now. I mean, I, while it may come you know, later into the session when we have a little bit more certainty, not just about this budget, but also the economy, uh, it, I think it's still appropriate to be in the drafting phase. Uh, so it, one of the things to consider is we're still building a sizable surplus. There are still a, plenty of federal dollars that's flowing through the economy. 
Uh, do we need to look at trying to slow that down by advancing, for instance, a tax cut to the first of this actual calendar year? And I, I know that's you know, some of the considerations that we made. And at this point, I think it's something that we should be doing. Um, anything that's kind of on your pet project list of, of potential yeah. tax reform? As far as tax, me in particular, I'm going to focus on individual income taxes. I do believe that we should do some more for historical type tax credits, and so I'll be looking at that. Film industry also, in, in my mind, those items are tax credits or uh, incentives that help stimulate business in the economy, help bring people to Arkansas, and are you know really revenue neutral. We need to put to the forefront, and we can start moving some of those items. All right, I got under two minutes left. I'm going to take you off the budget hot seat, but I'm going to put you on a different hot seat now. So, uh, you're a big supporter of some of the education reform mm -hmm. um, that um, that Governor Sanders is pushing. I want you to explain to viewers how a potential I'm going to call it a voucher system and call it parental rights or choice, whatever you want to do. How does the voucher system work? I don't think it takes any more money out of the right. actual education budget, but it, it budget, but it moves money within school districts potentially. It, um, it and could. If, if we do this per follow the student kind of model. Well, and one of the things that most of us are waiting on, I think most all of us, is, except for maybe the sponsors, is what does that vehicle look like? You know, currently we have a scholarship type program that utilizes tax credits. Do we continue with that, you know, model? Or again, to you, you know, more just strictly a voucher that gets to follow the kids? I haven't seen it. Uh, I'm very, very interested, as you said. What do you want? Um, well, uh, you know, at this point, I, I just think we need to be, uh, it's not my wheelhouse in some ways. It is and it's not. You know, we're, we're, you know, what I did was a small step. This is going to be looking to be making a huge step is what I, what I think. Uh, so I, I just want to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable, that it's actually going to be able to get kids in the situation that they need to be in, that parents are able to make those decisions. Uh, and, and, and again, place your kids in the best environment so they have the most uh, likely to be successful. State Senator Jonathan Dismang is a Republican from White County and the chair of the Joint Budget Committee of the Arkansas Legislature. He talked with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find other legislative-related interviews from Roby's TV programs, Talk Business and Politics, and Capital View at talkbusiness.net. This month, we'll be able to watch a movie filmed in northwest Arkansas in theaters. The Civil War-era drama Freedom's Path was filmed at area locations including Prairie Grove Battlefield Park, War Eagle Mill, Lincoln, and Cane Hill. Carrie and Blake Elder of Fayetteville-based company Rock Hill Studios served as executive producers on the film, and Rock Hill was also involved in filming the new movie. Most of the filming took place in October and November 2019. The movie was written and directed by filmmaker Brett Smith, and is produced by Seattle-based studios Rocket Soul Studios and 1812 Films. Arkansas PBS and Philander Smith College are working together for Philander Forward Film Series. It's taking place in Little Rock, a new screening series designed to unite students and communities through films illuminating the black experience and telling stories that matter. The Philander Forward Film Series is free and open to the public. Upcoming screenings include Making Black America, Parts 1 through 4. More information at myarkansaspbs.org.
And the Arkansas Cinema Society now accepting applications for the Filmmaking Lab for Teen Girls now through March 10th for junior and senior high schoolers. The lab will take place this summer in Little Rock at the newly renovated Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts and offer young women a chance to experience screenwriting, directing, cinematography, editing, production design, lighting, sound recording, and ask questions about careers in what is a male-dominated world of cinema. Courses will be led by industry professionals from around the country. And get this, the lab is free to participants thanks to the session sponsors. Much more information at Arkansas Cinema Society. Calling all aspiring musicians, NPR's biggest music competition is back. Wow! I'm Taylor. Welcome to my Tiny Desk concert. And thank you for having me at the Tiny Desk along with my buddy here, Stingy. This is um, an interesting setup here. NPR's Tiny Desk contest is back for 2023. You could join a chorus of your favorite artist in playing the famous Office Studio. The contest is open to unsigned artists 18 and older. All you have to do is submit a video of yourself performing one song from behind a desk. Entries are open on February 7th through March 13th. For rules and guidelines, visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I am in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. With me is Anthony Ball, who is Program Director with Music Moves, and Chani Platt, who is a board member of Fayetteville uh, Mardi Gras and a former... KUAF employee. Former KUAF membership director. (laughs) That's right. We didn't have these sweet digs back then. (laughs) We're all here to talk about Mardi Gras. And um, Chatty, let me start with you. The Mardi Gras celebration of Fayetteville is back. And I say back because I think it's been two years since we've had it. Two-year hiatus due to COVID. um, And... You are a former Grand Marshal, Kyle Kellogg. One of my favorite days ever. Yes. I got to throw candy and stand up in the back of a convertible. <laughs> it's a rough job, isn't it? It is. And, and wear this gold robe. And, yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great having you. Uh, this is the 30th anniversary? 30th anniversary of Fayetteville Mardi Gras. Um, we call it the Fat Saturday Parade of Fools because it's it's not on the Fat Tuesday night. It's uh, more of a family-friendly event on Saturday afternoon. Oh, all the kids and dogs and everybody can come out and watch. And this is on February 18th? February 18th, 2 p.m. I bring up that weekend because there's a lot already happening that weekend, isn't there? Yes, yes. Uh, we, we, uh, well, we, uh, Music Moves, our nonprofit, we are doing uh, our Black Music and Film Expo the same weekend. Uh, and I reached out to some friends at the city and they said, hey, uh, we have a cool parade that's going on. And I said, what's going on? And uh, I learned about the Mardi Gras. I was kind of embarrassed. I'm, I'm 30 years behind. Uh, <laughs> so I, I feel like I should have known about this a long time ago, but I'm super glad I did. I, uh, I met Miss Chatty, and uh, we've, we've drawn all the lines of how we should have met a uh, long, long time ago. But we're going to make up for some a lost time and have a lot of fun uh, February 18th. So what's going to happen when Fayetteville, Mardi Gras, and Music Moves combine 
superpowers? What can we expect? Do we know well, we're going to have more great music in the parade <laughs> for one thing? That's what I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring some cool bands. Yeah. Uh, so first, uh, we have the UAPB, the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff marching band M4. They're going to be marching in the parade. Oh my. Uh, yes. So we're so when, excited. Yeah. I'm, we, we were we were over the hills excited about this at the first planning meeting. Uh, and also Crescent City Combo, local celebs will be uh, a part of the, the uh, parade as well, too. So we're going to have a lot of good time, and afterwards we'll we'll continue to party at George's. Wow, uh, Chatty, I've been in the parade before. I've watched almost every one of that we've had. People can participate. You don't have to wait for an invitation, right? That's I mean, right, Kyle. In fact, this year we're having a new entry contest, and we are talking large or small or tiny. You can have your little red wagon out there and decorate it, a grocery cart, a golf cart, um, bicycles, trucks, lawnmowers, you name it. We're encouraging everyone to get together with friends, decorate something, and enter the parade. And you can do that by going to contact at FayettevilleMardiGras.com to enter. We're also looking for volunteers and sponsors because all the proceeds are going to this year's designated charity, Peace at Home Shelter, thanks to our queen, Michelle Hale, and her boyfriend, John Rose, the, the royalty this year. How does that work? It works where the new entry contest and everything after the parade ends at the intersection of Dixon and West, we move over to the Graduate Hotel lobby where we'll do the presentation of the check to Peace at Home, name the winner of the new entry contest, and uh, have a big piece of king cake. And, of course, uh, Peace at Home provides um, transition and shelter and refuge for people escaping domestic violence situations. That's correct. And uh, so many people who are in that situation do not leave. About 50% don't leave because of their beloved pets. Um, So what's one of the things that these funds are going to go to is the Candy Clark Pet Sanctuary that the Peace at Home is is currently building. And Chatty would know about dogs. That's right. You have Dog Party USA. That's right. And so we're going to be a part of that um, fostering for people who ha- need to go to peace at home but need a place for their pet. We're calling this project Paula's Paws. So we're looking for fosters to take in dogs for a short period of time, not rescuing, not rehoming, no guilt trip because you can't adopt this pet. Uh, there'll be cats, dogs, bunnies, who knows. But um, we're open for business and looking for fosters. Or if you know someone who is in a situation of domestic violence who needs some help, have them reach out to Peace at Home. Anthony, you mentioned that that weekend is uh, also the Film and Music Expo. I know mm-hmm. film is the first day, mm-hmm. so the Friday, right? The yeah, so Friday we'll be at the Town Center. Uh, we have uh, Arkansas Razorback great Quinn Grovey. He'll, he'll be showing some of his documentary, uh, local, local celeb. Uh, Michael Day, he'll also be a part with Day Vision. And uh, our, our headliner, we're really excited about um, Little Fire in Africa from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, it's a documentary surrounding uh, music that's going on in, in, in uh, Tulsa right now and a reflection of the Tulsa burning that happened as well, too. So uh, we're really excited about that. And we'll also have Rodney Block uh, from Little Rock, jazz, jazz R&B band that'll be uh, there as well performing. And the next day, will be at George's Majestic Lounge uh, all day from pretty much from 3, 3 o'clock to, to midnight.
night will be at George's with with a lot of of bands. We have uh, Yin Yang Twins, uh, H Town, Avery Sunshine, Funk Factory, um, a, a great. Um, blues gospel group out of Dumas, Arkansas, the uh, the Racy Brothers, they'll be here. Again, Crescent City Combo, they'll be a part as well too. So we got a lot of a lot of activations going on that weekend. People can find out the full schedule. Yes. Uh, music moves. You can go to our uh, we we have an Instagram, we have a Facebook, we also have a website, www.musicmovesar.com. So all the information is there released. You got tickets, you have information on the parade. Uh, that's at two o'clock that Saturday as well, too. Anthony Ball is program director with Music Moves, and Chatty Platt is a board member of Fayetteville Mardi Gras. The Mardi Gras parade is set for Saturday, February 18th. You can find out much more at FayettevilleMardiGras.com. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Oy News Studio, Pastor Clint Schneckloth, who's lead pastor for Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. Welcome back. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Quarterly, we talk about book recommendations that you bring us, and the quarters are more or less in conjunction with the seasons. This is winter. This is my least favorite season, but I just have a feeling this is one of that you just, you lean into winter. Well, yes. I grew up in Iowa and lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Slovakia. So that winter, would that would to me though be reason to not like, like winter. winter. Yes, I would say that moving to Arkansas has made it where I feel the cold more. I think than when I lived in those other places. Like I notice it a little right. more. Uh, but we really do miss like having long seasons of snow. That's mm. the one thing we probably mm. truly miss about living in Arkansas, and I bet that you don't miss that at all. Well, I've never experienced that, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't imagine why anyone would miss it. Uh-huh. But to each their own, <laughs> let me ask you this about the first recommendation of books you're going to make for winter. Uh-huh. Does winter influence what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks? Not exactly. Um I don't know. Maybe, I guess, in the sense that all, all three of these books, so to just to put it in context, um, a number of the people in our congregation are also professors at the University of Arkansas. It just so happened that this year, three of them all published books in the same year, hmm. which is not always the case. You know what I mean? Because it like, takes a while to put the book together. I think any church could be pretty proud that Absolutely. three members would come out with books in the same year. And so um, I guess the only way that I could try to make a connection between winter and that is you typically have to take certain amounts of sabbaticals sure. and other retreat to get I, that kind of work done. I appreciate the work you just did to get there. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our first collection of winter suggestions are all from U of A professors? That's right. And members of your congregation? Yes. Now, none of them are published by the University of Arkansas Press, which that's also not unusual because every press has its, but they are all out of university presses, um, which I think is kind of fun too. You know, like 
more and more I've been uh, loving how these university presses, small presses, have continued mm-hmm. in an era when so much media has transitioned. And um, and these are like when you when you hold them in the ha- in your hand, they are nicely crafted volumes. Right. And humorously, I don't have any of them with me. Be- I have because I loan them all out. Uh, they're kind of fun to hold, and I wanted people to be able to read them. And university press books are not cheap. No, because they're small batch, right? And uh, the U of A or the the university presses have to make a living. It's like going to the cheese shop, you exactly. Know, if you want good cheese, right? Uh huh. Well, let's let's. What's our first slice? Okay, so I'll start with since we we're already talking about kind of media. I'll start with this one that's an edited volume: Remediating Region, New Media, and the U.S. South, edited by three uh, um, academics: Gina Kazan. Stephanie Roundtree, and then the member from Good Shepherd, Lisa Hendrickson. And what it is, is it's a collection of essays at the intersection of media, ecology, and regional studies, specifically regional studies of the South. To give you an example of that, in case people aren't really familiar with either of those things, um, one of the essays that I loved the most in this uh, book was uh, an essay about shape note singing, mm-hmm. um, which I'd heard of, and I've even seen it performed. Like last uh, summer when we were in Maine, we just happened to go into a park and there was a group in a gazebo, right? and they were doing shape note singing. I, I don't know if it still happens, but Shiloh Museum of Ozark History has hosted regular shape note sessions. Yes, and that one Presbyterian church on the west side of town, the historic one, right. I think also hosts some sessions of this too. Well, what the author does in that essay is first d- does a really great job of introducing the reader to what it, shape note singing is and how it's different. Um, the basic thing is that, that each note has a different shape so that you know which pitch you're supposed to sing based on what the shape of the note is, right. which made it easier for the average um, Make it easier singer for me. to read and then sing along. Uh, but then makes the argument in the essay, which I just found, found fascinating, that it was a kind of a democratizing move. Um, you know, if you think about the way song is within the um, Christian tradition anyway, Many traditions, it would have been like, say, only the priest who chanted the liturgy mm-hmm. up front and would know how to do the liturgy and sing it. And then there was a there was a, a bit more of a community move that took place, like say during the Reformation. This is why Lutherans are are famous for choral singing because you you had a group that a would community. sing a community, and you would write the hymns so that the community might sing it. But you still there was a literacy component there and a, still a sense of like there's a leader or a group of leaders or something like that. Well, what shape note singing did is it flipped it all completely around. This is the argument the author makes so that the singing isn't actually for those who are hearing it, but for the people singing it themselves. And so it involved how you sit. You sit in this uh, square mm-hmm. facing each other instead of facing the congregation that you're performing for. And then the resource that's printed is like designed so that if someone had a very wide range of literacy levels can still learn how to read it and sing sure. it. Um, so that's where you get 
the connection between the region, the popularization of this format in an area where maybe people didn't have, um, you know, like maybe the Ozarks couldn't get a high-end priest to come in mm. and lead their song, you know, and so it was more arising from the people. And the name of that book? That book was Remediating Region. All right, let's go to the second one by a U of A professor. Okay, now this one has the longest subtitle, uh, maybe. Uh, well, no. <laughs> All academic books have long subtitles. So, But this one's Erica Almanara, uh, The Language of the In-Between, Travestis, Post-Hegemony, and Writing in Contemporary Chile and Peru. Uh, okay, so travestis are is, a, is the term within those uh, countries for what we would... Uh, um, Say as a, a person who's trans. Okay. Right. Uh, and is 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 that word um, accepted by? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's the. It's a positive. Kind of adopted. It maybe had originally maybe like other words like queer maybe had another uh, sense, but it's now the, the okay use word. And um, what what. Uh, Erica does in this book is she's very interested in that culture. Uh, she's interested in the, the role that it plays within the culture of those uh, countries. And she makes the argument, this is the basic thesis, which I just find fascinating, is that those countries needed that community of people as a foil to define more starkly its own sense of heteronormative nationalism. So as those countries were kind of like emerging and defining who they were, um, they, they needed this. They needed the, other, quote, other. Right? right, yeah. And so she then goes in in, in the course of the book uh, to first make that point. This is a common you know, structure for academic works is you kind of lay out your thesis, make your argument, examining the academic literature, and then do a deep dive in the later chapters into reading specific pieces of literature that can illustrate the point. And her area of study, and what's fun about reading it, is she especially looks at um, theater and novels from Chile and Peru, which I don't always get a lot of exposure to. No. You know, um, that's one of the reasons why I love reading academic uh, books some t sometimes is if I know that I'm not going to be able to read, you know, say like the four novels that they're bringing up, I at least get this exposure through their reading of them. Right. That book has gotten a lot of attention at the university. She's hosted a couple of Zoom sessions. Um, th this is just a topic that I think is a, a real interest to people. Book. And we'll just give you the main title, The Language of, of the, the In-Between. In -between. If you yes. Google that, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And finally... Okay, so then, uh, <laughs> words made flesh, formations of the post-secular in British Romanticism by Sean Dempsey. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of the long subtitles, right? Okay, so so Sean Dempsey is an English professor um, at the university, and this book is about romanticism, the the era within English literature, uh, especially looking at like, say, um, you, you know, even if people don't spend a lot of time reading these guys anymore, um, uh, I think people end up being familiar with the names just because you got like a little survey course in, in high school or college, right? But so Keats, mm -hmm. Coleridge, Blake, Wordsworth, right? Um, 
the reason we all go to the Lake District if we ever get a chance to when we if you go to the UK. In this book, he is curious about something. There's this the, there's this general idea in the world right now that at least in Western parts of the world, like say Europe and the United States, that we are secularizing, right? People are, and by by that they mean less religious, mm-hmm. disaffiliating from faith communities, and and so they mean secular in the sense of not become not being religious. We see this sort of reflected in that annual report that comes, I think, from the Pew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right, except for what a lot of secular thesis types, what they would argue, like um, Charles Taylor is the most famous of these who wrote a big fat book on the secular, argues that secularity is not the moving away from religion, but for the first time within Western culture, creating the space where you have alternatives. So what the, the, there the definition is like, you might be uh, atheist mm-hmm. and I might be a Christian and neither one of us feels like that's a threat right. to each other. I don't have to put you up on a stake and burn <laughs> you because you announced that you're an atheist. Right. Whereas they used to. Exactly. Right? And that's pre-secularity. Okay. Well, what Dempsey's curious about is that that's, all of that seems very kind of intellectual. But, how, but he wants to know how does secularism feel, which is different than, like, I don't believe that anymore, right? But mm-hmm. how does it feel to move within a space that's secularizing or to, to move into the secular yourself? Mm-hmm. So on a base level, I find this fascinating uh, because I'm encountering this all the time as a pastor. People are examining in their own lives, you know, do I believe all the stuff that the church or the religious tradition in which I was raised teaches? Um, and they, and they, they think about it in kind of an intellectual way and decide, like, can I buy into the creed or not? But underneath that, they're always also talking about how they feel about that. It's emotional. Sure. Well, his argument is that's the whole point of romanticism was to try to help you uh, feel along with Right. So a lot of the um, emerging romantic authors, as they were writing, what was new about what they were doing was they were trying to write in such a way so that you would come along viscerally and kind of feel what was what the character or the poem or whatever felt. So a sort of literary empathy. Yeah. Which is why, of course, another word. Of for the literature of that period, sentimentality. Right, right. Right. And to go to the the argument of that media, the, in a way, that's virtual reality. Or it was that era's version of virtual reality. Sure. I mean, you can't quite, they didn't have the technology to do virtual reality, but they were going along as close as they could. So if they did their job well, you would smell and taste and feel what, you know, what they were writing about. Well, this made me go back and start to be more open to romanticism in that period, because honestly, it's not an era that I had spent as much time in, but now it's made me a lot more curious to go back and, you know, kind of re-engage some of those texts. Um, But then he, he, he's making the argument that also this is, uh, 
in a way, a religious move. So in, in that way, literature becomes in many ways what religion is or has been. You know, that the reading of a sacred text and coming along with it does all of these things within a post-secular context. Interesting. Which is why he gives it the title Words Made Flesh, and there's very, you know, iconic, uh, iconographic oh. imagery on the front. Um, it's, it's a riff, of course, on Christian theology that Jesus is the Word made flesh, or right. the Eucharist is spoken into being something else because of the words that are spoken over it, that kind of thing. The name of the book is Words Made Flesh, Formations of the Post-Secular in British Romanticism. You'll have another, not necessarily winter-influenced, but collection of books for our winter conversations when you return, right? I will. Thank you, Pastor Clint Schnickloth. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning from 5 to 9 on 91.3 KUAF. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families' 22nd Annual Soup Sunday is February 5th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. at the Rogers Convention Center. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated from a variety of local restaurants and vendors, live music, and auction items. 927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Cross That River at the Skokus Performing Arts Center February 25th at 7.30 p.m. Cross That River is based on real history in which black cowboys lived and helped settle the West and takes audiences on a musical journey into why black lives matter. Tickets available at 479-632-2129 or at skokuspac.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Bear Hollow Trail. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Roby Brock, Pastor Clinch Neckloth, and the news staff at KUAR in Little Rock. I'm Kyle Kellum.